I want this to be a place where we can be beautiful together because we see how beautiful we are. We don't have to convince other people of the beauty. We can just exist in it together. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to artist, technologist, and researcher Ari Malenciano. Ari's art and research practice explores computational anthropology, societal subconscious intellect, the ethnographical morphing of artistic expression across diasporas, speculative design, the formation and embodiment of mythology and rituals, and the materialization of omniscoped research in the form of quasi-pseudosciences. Yes, that is a mouthful. And yes, 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 she is absolutely as smart and fascinating as that sounds. She is the founder of Afrotectopia, a cultural institution that is imagining, researching, and building at the nexus of new media art, design, science, and technology through a Black and Afrocentric lens. Afrotectopia has hosted talks on things like creating an anti-racist technoculture and created interactive projects like Metamorphosis, an audiovisual healing environment. An academic and educator, she is currently teaching courses on emerging technologies like AI, art, and design at New York University and Parsons The New School. Her work has been supported and published by Sundance, The New York Times, the Studio Museum of Harlem, New Museum, MIT Media Lab's Space Exploration Initiative, the National Endowment for the Arts, Dean Journal, and so many more. I'm pretty confident that listening to her will change the way you see everything. Here's Abby. I am Adi Melanciano. I work and live in Brooklyn, New York City, and I create because I love to learn about the world. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. 
We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. I learned so much in researching you and your work that I am so excited to dive in. But before we get to what you're doing now, I want to learn about young Adi. Can you take me back to your formative years and tell me about your childhood, your family dynamic, and the types of things that captured your young imagination? Yes, I was born in Miami, Florida, to two parents. They came from Dominican Republic, so both of them were immigrants. And then I mostly grew up with my mom and my sister. We moved from Miami to different parts of New York State. We even lived in Lower East Side, New York for a little bit. One of my favorite stories that my mom tells me when I was younger, I was like four years old while my older sister was in like dance class. My mom and I would stand on the corner and I would just pass out all of my drawings to strangers just because I loved my art and I wanted everyone to have it too. So I reflect on that a lot of like, what does that mean as far as like who I am and just loving to create. So very much invested in the arts, grew up loving art. My mom also invested in my sister and I going to different museums and different art supplies. Also was a self-proclaimed gadget girl. Loved, loved calculators for whatever reason, anything with buttons. Like everywhere I went before even going to school, I had a backpack full of gadgets. So I just also had this general inclination towards the possibilities when merging art and tech together. For whatever reason, I had this inclination that them two coming together would be something really beautiful. Even though I didn't really get to see that too much around me, I just thought that that, like something about art and tech was really special. Whatever I could get my hands on that was similar to both of those was exciting for me. Were you an outlier with your mom and sister? Your mom was clearly involved in taking you to the museums and things. So art was celebrated in the family. But did this gadget girl persona persist throughout the family? Or were you the owner of that? My mom, she's always telling me about another cooking gadget that she's bought. So (laughs) maybe that, like maybe we just like stuff that's technically kind of cool. But no one around me was interested in tech at all. You're older or younger than your sister? She's older than me by eight years. So we were just generationally very apart. But what I did get a lot from her was music. Like that's how I became a big Aaliyah fan and knew all about the 2000s, hip hop, like all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Older sisters are great for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now I want to hear about teenage, Adi, because that's a time when many of us are lurching clumsily toward adulthood and struggling to individuate, but also trying to find our collective. And so I'm wondering what your teenage years felt like and sounded like. Well, even as a kid into teenage years, my nickname in pre-K was Silent Stream. So quietness was always a thing of mine. I was extremely shy and quiet for most of my life. And I think more in like high school, that's when I really started to branch out and like get more comfortable with myself. And then I kind of reverted again to being quiet in college. And then in mid 
20s ish to now is where I'm like back into, oh, okay, I see who I am and I have a greater comfort. So, teenager was very much extremely introverted, but also just extremely interested in the world still. Like, academics was everything. I loved school. I loved school until high school. Then I like started liking the social stuff and not really caring as much as the academic stuff. We're actually taking steps back, even in elementary school. I loved school so much that some of my favorite things would just be coming up with different mathematical equations. And then my teacher announcing that to the class and I would teach everyone this different way of learning the mathematical equation I were doing. Like for me, that was really exciting. I'm just like taking a lot of time studying the ways that we're learning and thinking about new ways to do it. So school was really, really important to me. And then teenagers, like the art persisted. I was always creating. I always was the president of my school in elementary school and middle school and even high school. And I always left like a mural inside the school. So finding ways to kind of bring art and use that to represent the community was really important. Always was very active. I played sports growing up. I was always on a sports team every season in high school. I was on a different tennis, soccer track. So just very active and creative and and social, especially high school. I'm kind of interested in this leadership position that you always had and and went after as a shy person that surprises me. Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, your drive to lead was stronger than your need to recede. Yeah, I think as I get older, I'm like, oh, wow, I was just always afraid of saying the wrong thing, being the wrong thing. It was just like this fear that was very much rooted in perfectionism. But I also really trusted myself and had a lot of confidence in myself. So it was both like being really quiet, but also just like I see things that I don't think other people are seeing. I've always had this like level of responsibility. Like my mom tells me you cannot carry the world on your shoulders because everything will affect me. But it's really just I just really want this place to be better. I see how I can make it better. So that was more of like I want to be a leader because I want to make it better. Yeah. Well, it's all adding up. (laughs) (laughs) It's all adding up. So in terms of the college years, you went to University of Maryland for your undergrad. Then you studied in Barcelona for a bit before going to NYU's ITP, Interactive Telecommunications Program, for grad school. Can you describe your personal and creative evolution during the college years? Yep. I went to University of Maryland. I really didn't want to go there. I really wanted to go to an art school but I just didn't know how to apply to colleges. I ended up going to Maryland. Maryland is still an amazing school. Like it's like, and I was paying in-state for really great education. So that was nice. But I think for me, I also just really wanted to use college as a time to branch out. Like I would go to school. Then I would see my soccer coach from when I was like five to 18 walking on campus. I'm like, okay, this is way too close to home. I love to see you, but like, I got to get out into the world. So I ended up studying abroad for a year in Barcelona because I really just wanted to get very far and kind of just like figure out who I am and that sort of stuff. So Barcelona was so impactful to me as an artist and being able to live in a city that valued art in the way that I did. Like I just didn't see that around. So immensely impactful. And then it also in being in Barcelona, there's La Messe Festival, which happens at the end of the summer. In that festival, the Moment Factory had projection map on top of La Sagrada Familia and did this amazing bringing to life of this old church through technology. And that was so much of what I had wanted to do as a kid. I just had never seen something like that. So that was so impact. And I would see that when I would travel all around when I was in Europe for that whole year, like going to Portugal, there were a lot of like different opening kind of ceremonies where they did a lot of projection mapping onto buildings. So that was very exciting 
And after I left there, I knew that that's the kind of work that I wanted to study to do a profession like that. So I went to grad school and did creative technology, ITP. Ah, so it was impactful in so many ways. Did it satisfy a little bit of that craving to experience the rest of the world? Or did it just kind of open a can of worms too? It did both. I traveled before. I didn't travel much as a kid. Like I had gone to the the Dominican Republic one time and uh, went to Spain in high school for some program. But that was the first time where I was like, oh, wow, like the world is huge and I'm so small. Like that was really exciting to be in in the midst of so many different cultures Like I was in college drinking in the U.S. That doesn't start until 21. I could drink at 18, like be at a restaurant and have pizza and wine. So that was really exciting. But just like being around different people, I think that was, it just opened me up in so many ways. And I was there on my own. I didn't know anyone there. So I'm already a very independent person, but that like really made me even more independent. But yeah, that that moment was everything to me. And It also just like, it showed me that there are people out in the world that really, because growing up in the US, like it can be artistic in different areas, but there are actually like cultures that are immersed in the arts, even if they don't actually even realize it, they just live in such an artful way. Yes, that was really a big realization for me at one point too. And I love that you're doing your part to (laughs) re-artify the United States or from wherever your work is emanating from. Speaking of your work, I'd love to talk about your career trajectory. I know you're an artist, creative technologist, a researcher, educator, academic speaker, and so much more than that. You hack synthesizers, DJ. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing the breadth of your interests and skills and the way that you put them together to create work. But I'm deeply interested in Afrotectopia. And you founded that in 2017. I sort of did the math. Was that during grad school or right after? Yeah. During my second year of grad school, founded that. That really came from a variety of different experiences. One being finally in a program and it just felt like a dream come true where all the things that I loved were happening at one time simultaneously. Like to be able to learn technology in a way where I had been so intimidated before, like I had gone to a science and tech magnet program, high school, really didn't touch the tech. I would let the guy in my group kind of lead it. And just because I didn't feel confident in myself and I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing and it stopped me from even trying. So to go to a tech program where I had had this natural infinity towards art and tech, but didn't have the comfort of computer science to approach it, to be in a program that taught it in a way where I could bring my artistic skills. Like that was a superpower that I had. I didn't have to rely on knowing all these different coding languages. So that gave me a huge confidence boost. And then to go in and create, and I'm learning all of these things about physical computation and creative coding, but I have all this art way that I want to apply to it. That was everything. It was a dream come true. And then the other sides to it of just being in a program where all my professors are white, or at least not black. And then always being that student in the class where I was raising my hand saying, this doesn't seem like it's very culturally sound or it's not going to resonate across society. Or like, I felt like I constantly had to advocate because it just didn't exist there. And that was a frustration. So it was a great time, but it was also extremely frustrating. It just very organically came to me of, oh, let me just create a community because I don't know of a community that exists where it's black people that are thinking about art and tech. And we have all this access to all these different resources. And I want to make sure that Black people can see themselves in this space because I didn't really see myself in the space. For whatever reason, I had that inclination, but I didn't see anyone that was doing any of the stuff that I'm even doing today that looked like me. So 
it was trying to figure out how can I bridge a community together where we can build each other up and show each other all these different tools and resources, and then also show the world that this community exists and that we should be tapped into and invested in. It, it just didn't feel like there was much effort in making sure that this kind of people exist in these different programs. Because what was happening in my own program was happening across academia. Like generally, academia is very racially inadequate. Generally, technology is extremely racially inadequate. So I think just like for me, it was very much of, oh, how can I show that this is something that is really valuable, both to our, ourselves and to others? Well, I mean, you're doing a phenomenal job of that, I think. But for our listeners, can you give us an overview of what Afrotechtopia is, like the framework of it? And I know it's evolving over the years. So maybe you can tell us the story of Afrotechtopia as it evolves and intertwines with all of the other professional work you're doing in terms of like, I know you were a creative technologist at Google for a couple of years, and you're on faculty at NYU, and you were an MIT research affiliate. So all of that seems like it's winding around together and creating a very relational field that's super fertile. It was in my second year of grad school and having all those different experiences. And so decided, okay, I really want to create this festival that creates this community and brings all these different people together. So I told my program about it and got immediate support. One professor of mine, Nancy Heckinger, just met with me all the time to help me build out these ideas. And she would say kind of like to slow me down because I wanted to create a week-long festival. And she was like, let's just do a few days. She was my breaks. And I also, the chair of my program immediately introduced me to whoever he could just to get some support in that way. So it felt great to be a part of a program that maybe they didn't know how to do it themselves, but they saw someone that was really interested in doing it and they invested. So I had a lot of support in that way. And so it started off as a festival. We had it for a weekend. It sold out very quickly after being announced and really didn't take much marketing, which is putting a few things up on Instagram. And I think it was just something that people already really wanted. And so people found their way to it and it just spread like wildfire. And it, it's been kind of like an organic sort of success in that way of just like, it's reached people that it needed to reach. And those people have really wanted something like that to exist. And so we all kind of just like built it up. And so it started as a festival and that was during my second year while I was also building out my thesis project. And then after wrapping my second year up, I had Afrotectopia still and I was trying to figure out what to do with it. When I graduated NYU, they asked me to stay for an additional year to be a researcher. And so there I did a lot of research on societal implications of big tech and so while I'm doing that, I'm also still thinking about Aftertopia. What kind of programming can I do to make sure that we're having all this fun with tech, but we're also studying the ways that this can be really harmful and getting ahead of it and not letting these corporations dictate how we live our lives without any intervention on our part. So that was when we started to do a lot of programming at iBeam, which is a big art and tech institution in New York and do things like have an anti-racist Technoculture manifesto building. So people in the Afrotopian community, we could do that sort of program. So it was a lot of just like, I already had a lot of connections within other institutions in the city. And it was, how can I bring Afrotopia into that? And that's generally been how Afrotopia has existed of, as a student at NYU. How can I bring Afrotopia into the community there? Through my research affiliate with MIT, that was also of a similar nature of, I was asked to do research at the Space Exploration Initiative based off the own work that I had already done. And so for me, it was, okay, well, I already have this community that could be really exciting if we kind of bridge these two and do work in that way. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. But I think also the way that I've approached Aftertopia has changed over time. When I first created it, it was very much of, I see a lot of problems going on and I want to fix it. I want to diversify big tech. I want to show people that we exist. Of course, I want black people to see that we exist too, but it came from a very oppositional kind of energy of like, I'm really frustrated and upset with the world. And I want to change that. How it changed was more of, you know what, this is the way that the world is. And that even, it makes me reflect back to when I mentioned it, like always wanting to be the president. I think for me, it's also kind of just like understanding this is the way that the world is. And it's not always about fighting to make it what you think is better. Sometimes you just have to like accept the world as it is and just do your part in your own little area. And so for me, that changed the way that I looked at Aftertopia. I don't want this to be a tool where I'm constantly being an activist in the traditional sense of like fighting the world. I want this to be a place where we can be beautiful together because we see how beautiful we are. We don't have to convince other people of the beauty. We can just exist in it together. And so it became much more of, let me look inward. Let me make sure that when I design this festival, it's not about us replicating the way that conferences are traditionally held. If we have a bunch of panelists and everyone's looking to those people on the stage, but you're not looking at yourself and all the things that you already know. It was so for the second one was very much for one, let's understand who we are and let's really revel in that. Let's also empower everyone that's in the room. So instead of having a bunch of panels, we had community conversations. People could gather and they could all contribute their insight because it was just elevating how we all know something. So let's empower each other and let's design this future, not based off of what's going on in the present and what other people are doing, but the future that we want to build. So it was much more proactive as, a, as opposed to reactive. Aftertopia has kind of existed in three different phases. It entered the third phase of let's not even just design the future based off of what we know, but now in this third phase with MIT and doing all the space exploration work, but through a cultural lens of Aftertopia, let's actually exit this world and let's design a whole other world that doesn't even exist. And so that's what we've been doing for the past couple of years. And it's also been really small. It's just been four artists, myself included, and three other artists. And we are collectively, as Avertopia, as like a, a node inside of Avertopia, thinking about what is space like, but through this cultural lens and just working with each other, turning all of that, that work that we've done, the art renderings and the research into this book that we're actually going to publish this year. So Avertopia has changed even philosophically of being the space that is challenging the norm to eventually just, let's just look at ourselves and really champion ourselves to then even let's exit outside of this world to also being a place that has existed with a lot of people and then increasingly gotten smaller and smaller, which is very non-traditional to the way that I've seen really want 
to see Afrotopia kind of exist in the world and other spaces like that. I think we really incentivize, and it's just like the capitalistic nature of our society is we really incentivize scaling and growth in a numerical way. I'm just generally a much more intimate person, especially being very introverted. I value so much more the ability to be intimate and to really build trusting relationships. And so as opposed to kind of getting bigger and bigger as it easily could have, it's been much more, how can I just make sure that this is something that's a, a space filled with a lot of trust and working with people where we all really just enjoy being around each other. And so it, it's grown from there, but also with Afrotopia, it's something that I've built alone as a sole founder. And it's something I've managed alone as a sole producer and I think that takes a lot of wear and tear. So I'm, I'm thinking even just personally of just like how to navigate that of being a human being, but also when I'm involved in Afrotopia, I'm now an institution. I'm no longer just this human and people see me as an institution having started off as a student where you don't really mind doing free work, but now you're an adult and you have to sustain yourself. And I see these kind of problems happen a lot with people that just really want to do things for the world. And they start off when they're really young, but then they have to figure out as an adult, like, how do you turn all of that into something that's really healthy for you? So now it's in the space of figuring that out. What I am hearing is as you sort of go from traditional conferences down to a more collaborative self-reflective collective, your outputs are still open source and available to all. So it's not like you're keeping it for yourselves necessarily, but you are guarding the space in which it's created so that it can't be compromised by just being diluted or depleted or people not feeling safe or totally comfortable or, or not seeing themselves in it. And so in general, in the way that I've learned that you have approached this, there's a caretaking to it that's really, really, really powerful. A concentration of energy and intimacy that seems to me to be when you concentrate something and at its epicenter, it has all this potential. If that potential is shared in a way that doesn't deplete the concentration at the epicenter, then it does seem sustainable. And so much of that seems like it is a process of caretaking and making sure that you keep that nucleus kind of nurtured. Yeah, exactly. It's like you really have to protect it. It's a lot of emotional work. And it's also when you're building for a community, it's about race and it's the, the Black race. There's so much that's in that. And so for me, it's I've always been very cognizant of there's just a lot that's going to exist inside of a space when it's a space that at the core of it is very much about race and about Blackness and just all that comes with within that. And I think also just as you were saying, it's like you have to preserve yourself because when you're approaching something that fragile, so much care goes into it. Every little thing matters. So I think for me, I've learned that a lot of, for one, I have to protect myself as a human being and my energy because all of that's going to enter the space. But I also have to protect any sort of energy that's happening inside that space because as you mentioned, it also very much, the biggest thing is that it's helping way more people than have access to it. Like it's, it's always been very hyper local to New York just because that's where I am. And then when the, the pandemic happened, that actually was a great moment for Afrotopia because it allowed me to see, Oh, I can actually do things online. And now it's reaching people that have been emailing me to have things in their cities, but it's way too hard to get to. So with our fellowship during the pandemic, we had people that were in different parts of Europe, different parts of Africa, all over the world that were all uh, coming together and thinking 
So I think that was really special, but it's very much about how can you protect that, that core and that energy when it's so sensitive. Creativity and the race thing makes it a doubly sensitive space. So I can see the, the need for protection and I can see you doing it and with a lot of care and thoughtfulness. And I'm wondering how you balance your own sort of career trajectory outside of that. You're, you're taking research affiliates, you're teaching at NYU, you're doing stints at Google. While they seem to complement each other, I'm wondering if they do actually complement each other within you and within your own thought process. Ideally, they would complement each other. <laughs> Theoretically, they would. In real life, they do not. They like take energy from each other. So with the research affiliates, that was great. Like with MIT, that was amazing because now this is like this intellectual space that I get to use as a foundation to empower the, the community of Africatopia. So that works really seamlessly. And then also my relationship with ITP, that's great because I, I have such a great support system at NYU ITP. And so whenever I want to bring in Aftertopian related things, I can do it. Like I even created a course called Aftertopian Ecologies and I had that for two semesters where students could come and we could learn all about these different philosophies and ways of engaging with technology. Really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with Google. So I worked there full time for two years and that was my first time working in a corporation. Ideally, that could have been a space where I could have built all the things going on around me, but that actually became a a time for me to retreat because right before Google, I had just been doing so much working. Like I was running after Topia. I was doing my own residencies. I had my own freelance work. I was teaching five different classes. I was also an architecture student taking four classes. Like I was doing an insane amount of work and it was just overworked to the point where I just became depleted. And then also I was finding moments where even trying to be very careful with things like Aftertopia, there were tensions because just because you have people that are all coming together that shared certain ethnicity or race does not mean that everyone has the same values and ideologies. So I think that was a really big moment for me of, okay, I have to be even more careful about how I approach all of these things. And it was an amazing lesson for me. So with my time at Google, that was more of me for one, just being really exhausted, but then also it's such a demanding job that I didn't even have time to do anything outside of that. So I tried to do as much as I could with Aftertopia, kind of building it and all my other stuff, but also I just had to, you know, be as healthy as I could for myself. So I'm no longer working there. I had to just like really take a step back and understand I have to be really intentional and careful about the way that I use my energy and the spaces that I exist within, because if it doesn't align, then it's really going to affect me in ways that I'm so good at covering up with work and being busy, but I can feel it and I can see how my body is feeling. So now that I've taken a step back and I'm a month away from that moment, now I'm just thinking really critically of what is it exactly that I want to do and where do I want to put my energy? Yeah. Where do you want to put that energy? Well, I want to unpack that a little bit. But before we do that, I really want to get kind of deep into your creative process because it is fascinating. And I want our listeners to hear all about it. One I would love to hear about is metamorphosis because oh, it's just very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so metamorphosis is this web VR experience where you can go to the website, metamorphosis.fm is the URL. And it's a space that I've designed that uses a few different healing modalities to just be this meditative space. And so the idea for that came from, I was in my apartment in Brooklyn and it was in 2020 and it was just like a constant stream of protesting chants outside my window because it was the midst of the pandemic, but it was also the second uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement. So 
there was just a lot of frustration and angst in that moment. And I was thinking of things like uh, my previous studies in epigenetics, for one, of just understanding how these traumatic moments really embed themselves in our DNA and they stay there generationally. So I'm thinking about that moment. I'm thinking about the power of being in the midst of protests and chanting along other people and feeling empowered by that, but also the things that we're saying. Are we being critical about the things that we're saying when we're chanting? Like as good as it can feel to in sync be with other people chanting the same thing, also being mindful of what it is that we're saying because we're encoding that in ourselves. So things like I can't breathe and no justice, no peace, like the energy around those things, it's a lot for someone to continuously say. So I was thinking about, is there a way where we can kind of reverse the impacts of epigenetics? Is it even possible for it to not be only about pain impacting our DNA, but pleasure impacting our DNA? If we meditate enough, can that reverse something? So I wanted to create a space where it was built off of that the past studies in epigenetics, but also my studies in psychogeography of this area of studies where it really focuses on your environment impacts you psychologically and how things like if you enter a church or an older bank or just like a place of a lot of importance, the ceilings are much higher because that is meant to signify to you that you're in the midst of something great and you have a smaller presence, you know, to respect it. So I, I loved that way of kind of thinking about energy of like, when you enter a space, you know that it's significant. So I wanted to create that inside of metamorphosis where I had higher ceilings, also setting how psychogeography talks about how when you have curved kind of walls and, and the edges that actually allows for more calmness as opposed to like angular and rigid kind of structures. So everything is very circular. Um, and then also sonically how different Eastern cultures understand the relationship between different frequencies and different energy centers, like your chakras. Being someone that has studied sound design for a while, I wanted to create soundscapes that merged both the Eastern philosophies of sound with also the utilization of percussion in different Pan-African movements, like with the Haitian Revolution and the use of the djembe drum and that being a communication method. So blended djembe drums and other uh, African percussive tools with Eastern philosophies on sound design and chakras and created a soundscape for each of your different chakras as you move through the space that's just like very all hopefully inspiring. I love the energy and the intentionality at the base of it, which is if epigenetics encode traumas on our DNA, what can we do to either heal those traumas or to counterbalance them with a sort of positive encoding? And I can see you thinking like both a healer and a technologist and, of course, an artist in all of this. And it strikes me as incredibly powerful to also be able to hear oneself reflected in the percussive rhythms that are being deployed I think so many spaces just have this Western origin or veneer even. And so to be able to be in a space that isn't so Westernized, even if it's in your own mind, (laughs) is really, really beautiful. It would seem to be also a kind of quiet and self-reflective and nurturing way to kind of decolonize. Yeah, What's the kind of feedback you've gotten from this space? Like what have people's responses been and how do they feel? It exists out there, but I don't really have any interaction with people that use it. It's just a website. So uh, when I present it, people are excited, but I, I'm presenting it with along with a bunch of other work. So I don't really know what people's actual experience with metamorphosis is consistently, but from the people that I've talked to one-on-one back when I first made it, 
excited about it. I just shared it on my Instagram. I kind of just like make things share it and then I move on. So I don't even know. (laughs) Well, that's probably healthy to not get too attached. Is there anything else from your electromedia practice that you want to talk about? I also definitely would like for you to give us the overview of the 2020 Imagineer Fellowship. So things with like my electromedia practice, I am so invested in sound and just like using sound in different ways. So some other things that I've been doing are I, I, every summer, springish summer, I grow a garden on my roof and grow my own food. And it's just like an amazing, I just love plants. And so one thing that I've done more recently is starting to attach these different sensors to my plants to get the electromagnetic energy from the plants and then put that into my modular synthesizer and then turn that into these soundscapes. So it's like, if I could hear my plants, which I know they emit something and I just, I don't have the senses right now. Like I, I'm not aware of them to be able to interact with it in that way, but to turn its energy into sound is really exciting. So a lot of explorations with sound with the 2020 Imaginary Fellowship that was just one of my favorite moments within Afrotopia because we've had two festivals and those have been extremely fulfilling of just seeing the way that people feel in those spaces and the times that we're having together. But the fellowship, that is what really inspired me to continue going in this more intimate way because the fellowship actually only plans a budget for five different fellows. And I met with over 200 people around the world who were interested in doing it. And I was like, oh my God, there's so many amazing. So I extended it to 10. So there were 10 of us fellows that were together for a month and a half. And what we did was I came up with these different, before even announcing the fellowship, I came up with these different areas that we could potentially explore as fellows and decided the fellows that were selected would be the ones to really decide what work we actually do. And they all wanted to do those that had already been predetermined. So it was great. We just like jumped right in to all of these different issues. Some of the issues were, it was, it was in the time of the pandemic. So it was, how can we create a pedagogy that is culturally sensitive, but also online and like technologically relevant or those kind of things. A bunch of like of the time urgent ideas and areas to explore. So what we did, the fellowship, the whole purpose of that was using the savings of Average Utopia, because again, as a sole founder, I don't have time to fundraise. So if I just have some money, I'm just going to figure out, okay, how can I use this creatively to make something out of with Average Utopia? So with the savings, it was funding the fellows to just dream. Like all we did was just dream and imagine for a month and a half. I would write everything down. I would create mirror boards for them to write their own notes down. And then we also had, while I was interviewing for fellows, so many people were interested in this. And I saw that the biggest thing that they were interested in was just having a community of people that they could talk to about these kind of things because maybe they're in the middle of places where no one looks like them or they just aren't in school anymore. So they don't have a place to talk with people that are interested in these kind of things. So in addition to extending the fellows to being more than five to now being 10, I also every week held a public convening for us, for any of the people that had applied and for anyone in general that was interested, generally it was black only to come into the Zoom room and we could discuss the ideas, the same ideas that the fellows were doing, but in a public way. And we would also jot their notes down too. They would all put their notes down into a mirror board and the fellows would use everything from the public convening as a foundational understanding of this is where society is right now. This is the way that they're thinking about these issues. And then we would also spend that weekend studying, going through our thesis, researching, and we would turn that into public frameworks. Because as you even mentioned, identified, everything about Afrotopia is open source. How can we 
collectively in a small group, ideate and imagine and dream, and then turn all of that over to the public and what might you all do with it. So I would just turn everything that they had, all these people had thought and make it into visual graphics to put onto Instagram and Twitter. And then professors and all sorts of people would reach out and say, oh, wow, this is like great. And now I can do this in my classroom. And so it's just like this constant relationship between the public and Aftertopia. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I read some of the essays that were the um, outputs of some of the fellows, and they transported me. I mean, it was really powerful and exciting. And I felt some of the energy, you know, coming through them. And I heard you say this, or maybe I read it, but there's something really powerful about not just the capitalistic practice of paying for someone's immediate value, but investing in them to imagine, because the assumption is that that is valuable. Yeah. And to share that imagination is exponentially valuable. And I just kind of see that whole thing as a mushroom cloud of imagination, (laughs) which, um, which is amazing. And it takes a very cognizant, intentional person to build a space like that, knowing that it's not about a concrete output. And I'm not directing it from the beginning about where we're going. I'm just creating the space to go somewhere. Yeah, that's one of the big things I learned with Aftertopia. I can do all the planning and like have this vision, but at the end of the day, it's not about my vision. It's about the space that's created. That's, that's the vision, but it's the people that come in and they turn it into something that I couldn't have even imagined. And so that's what I just constantly try and create is I kind of call it like the container. It's just that space. Like a lot of thought as you're recognizing goes into just how are we going to experience each other? But the best part of it is just the energy that people bring into it and what they want to turn it into. You mentioned earlier something about being really intentional about how you spend your energy. I'm really curious about this because I think it's something that a lot of us are reckoning with. And I think it's something that we are kind of all understanding that capitalism and hyper productivity has the promise to kind of beat that out of us and deplete us. But there's so many existing frameworks in place that demand your time, attention, your energy, that you have to be very proactive about how you spend it. And it sounds like you are, and you're really sort of developing your own framework and decision-making for how and where to spend your energy. And I wonder if you can share any of that with us. Like, where are you at with it now? I am very much figuring it out. And I have to fight myself all the time because like, I'm constantly coming up with business ideas or like positions I want to do. And it's like, okay, Adi, just because you know that you can do that doesn't mean that you should 
do that. So I'm just floating right now. And I've, I never thought that I would do that of like leave a full-time job and with no plans whatsoever. And really because I had hustled for so long now I'm like, I'm okay to just kind of give myself that breathing room to just figure myself out. No one's relying on me. No one is depending on me. I think also me just understanding life is so much more than what we're taught to believe. And it's not all about clocking in every day. It's not all about capitalizing. Like I used to be the kind of person where every moment had to make money for me. I was doing 20 jobs at one time. Like anytime I had a free moment, it was all about, okay, how can I make money here? And I think that can be really like addictive (laughs) because it's like you're building your savings and you're doing all these great things but then you're not really paying attention to who you are. And towards the end of last year, what I was recognizing was I already had this idea that I wanted to go into 2023 way more about my body, way more about the human and less about the machine. And as someone that was working in big tech, I was spending 14 hours in a day staring at my screen and I wouldn't eat all day because I was just so busy. And like, it was just, and I wasn't taking care of myself. And so for me, it became, okay, the number one thing is, cooking for myself, like really simple things, cooking, walking, tapping into all my senses, like all of those sorts of things. But then it's also, okay, I've proved myself to a lot of different people. There's nothing to prove. It's more of just understanding myself. And I have, I I really wanted to devote a lot more time to understanding. Okay. Now, you know, if you work really hard and you put stuff out in the world, something can come of it. So what do you really want to do? Like what makes you really excited? Not what you're good at, but what like really makes you fulfilled and it makes you excited to wake up. And when I wasn't doing that sort of work, but I was finding success, I was like, okay, well, this is a moment where I have to take that leap. I mean, life is all about what I told my friend uh, the other day was um, really life. What I've understood it to be is you're just that bird that's on a cliff and you either decide to stand on that cliff because that's where it's safe. You jump and you fall and it's a failure or you jump and you realize that you can fly. And for me, I'm like, I I, ne- I don't want to keep standing on that cliff and doing all the safe stuff. And that's what I did for a really long time of just like hustling, but also doing a lot of safe stuff that I was really comfortable with because I knew that there was just constant yearning to do something else. And so I don't even know what that looks like even today, but I just know that I had to just try to just give myself some time to listen to myself. That's what you're doing right now is listening to yourself and tuning into your own like regenerative cycles. Is it time to start planting on your roof yet? Not yet. Almost. It's still too, almost. almost. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I, I'm not, I'm not the best gardener. In a few weeks, I probably will start going and getting some seedlings. Do you believe or are you open to believing that a concentrated amount of well spent energy is ultimately more powerful than a higher volume, I guess, of diluted output? That's what I'm figuring out. That's one of the number one things I'm trying to figure out. Cause as I've grown up, I've definitely very much been someone that has their hands in a lot of different stuff. And people would, oh, even in middle school, I remember I was trying out for the basketball team and the coach was like, Adi, you just came from theater. Like you just were in a play and now you're trying to, like, you have to pick one thing. And that's what always what people would tell me is Adi, pick one thing. And I would be really frustrated by that because I'm like, I don't want to pick one thing. Like I love all of these different things what I did to come to peace with the fact that I see other people getting really great at one craft and finding a lot of success in that while I'm trying to DJ and then also do a video artist and also be a painter. What I came to peace with is, okay, for me, it's not so much about success at this younger age. It's more about 
I really am invested in all these different ideas. And by working a little bit in all these different areas, decades down the line is when it's all going to come together. But I don't know. That's just the story I tell myself. For me, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out if I should narrow in, in this time that I have, like, should I just focus only on making amazing DJ mixes or should I focus on painting or like, I, I still don't know what to focus on. And so what I'm really finding is I just have to listen to my body and what really makes me excited is being able to spend a couple days in Ableton doing a lot of sound production and leaving it for a couple weeks and spending it doing something else. And I feel like for me, it's just the creative energy that just flows through a bunch of different stuff. And it's not so much about this one craft because I, I can't imagine one craft ever satisfying me in the way that just being creative and just like moving through different things satisfies me. So I don't know the answer to that. I just know for me personally, it works really well to be diluted and unfocused. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but at the same time, it sounds like you're honoring your need to fill yourself with all of these different interests. Maybe it feels diluted, but when it's time to output, you can concentrate this into a remix of something that's, you know, unique to you. And as you were describing that, it reminded me, I'm, I'm watching this movie about regenerative farming. There's a way to heal the soil, and it's not a monoculture. It's by planting many species in the same area, and it makes the, the soil have a more biodiverse, like microbes and all the organisms and, and all the composted material that goes back into the soil is more beneficial because it's more diverse. That's what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You're filling yourself with many species and becoming a very, very healthy, rich, kind of fertile place for things to grow from. Thank you. That's what it feels like. So I think it's also just like listening to yourself. Like society will tell you, focus on one thing, but you just have to listen to what works for you. Well, I love that you're in a space of listening to yourself and listening to what works for you. You know, normally at the end of this, I like to ask people what's on the horizon I don't even want to ask you that right now because I don't want you to have to, I don't know, pick something. But if you had a hope for some unexpected outcome of this time that you're giving yourself right now, what would that be? I think what I'm also realizing is as much as I built community, I think it was very much in service of what I thought was needed as opposed to thinking about what's the community that I need. And I am just constantly buzzing with all these different philosophies. And so now that I'm out on my own again, I'm pushing myself more out there. It's kind of like being a lighthouse in the middle of the ocean and just saying, I'm doing this. Is anyone else thinking about these kind of things? And so for me, I think what I would love is just to find more people that are really excited about the things that I'm excited about and just to community with them. So you want to go to the lighthouse and be, (laughs) instead of being the lighthouse. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Or maybe a little bit of both, but. Probably. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Well, you're such a fascinating and I want to say very generous, very thoughtful, gorgeous spirit. I really hope you do find the community that, that makes you feel full and abundant, and fertile, and seen. You too. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Adi, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. 
If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really means a lot to us when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. And if you're feeling generous, we would love you to rate and review. Thank you in advance. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.